welcome to Deeper, a podcast of Wollongong Baptist Church. The podcast aims to follow the sermon series and to take our congregation deeper into God's Word. Well, here we are. I'm Sarah Leffley and I'm here with Pastor Mark Roberts and we're ready to dive further into Acts. We are. The journey continues. The journey continues. I do want to know how you are, so tell me that first. I'm rather tired at oh, the moment. Dear. Yeah, there's a little bit of sickness around and mm. everyone, everyone's pretty busy. Typical end of the year kind of stuff. Yeah, but, it's um, the end of November vibe. Yeah. We hope we pick up in time for December. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I'm going to catch my breath after this week and uh, then rush towards Christmas. That's my sure. plan. Well, we'll pray that you're sustained Thank in the you. end of the journey. Um, but also, I really want to know about this barber that you talked about in your sermon. Was sure. there any follow-up after you told him about your love for Jesus? Uh, uh, um, the conversation continued, okay. uh, but he didn't bite at the you know the bait that I was dangling mm. in front of him. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly how he responded to that. I think it was just you know a polite, oh okay, good for you, yeah, that kind of thing. <laughs> On that occasion, uh, I was not bold enough to ask him the question, "Do you have a faith of any sure. kind?" I happen to have my two-year-old son with me at the time, and he was needing a bit of attention in the background too. So I was a little bit distracted, but ne- uh, nevertheless, um, no, we, we, we didn't get much further. Yeah. One of my experiences uh, in living in Wollongong is that I don't think I've ever had my hair cut by the same person twice. True. Uh, it seems like there's this revolving door of barbers in Wollongong. And so I've often thought, well, you know, I'll go back to the same place and I'll, I'll speak to the same person who cut my hair last time and try and continue the conversation. But Literally every time I have my hair cut, it's a new face, a new person. So I'm starting from zero again with them. There's something freeing about that, but it also means that you don't actually get to build a relationship with the person. For and, sure. That's uh, a challenge, I guess. And I guess who knows what he went home and thought about or yeah, will continue yeah, to think about, what yeah. seeds have been planted. You never know. Um, and it's a very vulnerable position, um, yeah. having scissors near ears. <laughs> Witnessing you at Christ, but yeah. I think you were bold enough first. Yeah, I, well, I, I was challenged once by uh, another pastor I heard when he was asked that question every time he's getting a haircut. His answer is, I help prepare people to die. Hmm. And, you know, it's a deliberately provocative yeah. kind of way of describing the pastoral task. I thought, well, I could do something like that, but a little bit less shocking. And so For that's sure. my, my effort to try and uh, bring Work Jesus your... into the conversation. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I like it or I don't like it. <laughs> no, but it, begs it even question. makes me uncomfortable. It begs yeah. a follow-up question. It does. What does that, what does yeah. that mean? It makes you conversation, know? no uh, doubt. Yeah. All right. Well, diving into Acts 24 mostly. Yeah. Um, I'm really curious to know about uh, – I know that when we're accused of being troublemakers, mm. often it's because there are people professing to be Christians, yep. but they're really acting in a way that's not a service to the gospel. It's quite heinous. It's acting out of judgment. Yeah. Is this what's happening to Paul? Are there real sects, you know, this Nazarene sect around that are, are a disservice to the gospel that he's being lumped in with? Um, yes, I think there are. Um, I should clarify. Um, so the language that uh, is used by Tertullus to accuse Paul of being part of the Nazarene sect at this point, that's just a way of referring to Christians in general, oh, not, right. not, a, not a specific okay. sect that's broken away in, Nazare- in Galilee, up in Nazareth, uh, thus far. However, in the years to come, um, there is a sect that develops that call themselves the Nazarene sect. Mm. And so by the third century, you've got uh, historians who are referring to the Nazarene sect, and that is actually a, a subset. It's sort of a breakaway group. They're basically uh, Jewish Christians who still keep the Torah. Okay. And so they exist for, for many, many, many years, um, but that's sort of later in history. At this point, it's just referring to uh, to Christians. Um, 
so what it, what exactly is Tertullus referring to when he, he he labels them as that Nazarene sect? I think what he's doing is trying to lump them in with other such sects, whether they be uh, from Nazareth or elsewhere, but the people who make trouble for the empire. And so at the time, uh, there are essentially four strands of Judaism. There's Phariseeism, Sadduceeism, Essenism. I don't know that one. Yeah, they're, they're the, um, the Essenes. The, the, think of the community uh, who produced the Dead Sea Scrolls in okay. Qumran. That was an Essene community. They're kind of... Uh, monkish kind of mm-hmm. um, mystical uh, followers of uh, Judaism. Uh, but then there was a fourth strand, which was more recent, like in the last century, uh, and that is zealotism. And so the zealots were those who were really trying to overthrow Rome and expel mm-hmm. them out of Israel. And so I, th- I think that's probably what Tertullus is referring to. Uh, Paul's like those, those guys who want to depose Rome, like those guys that you've already you know cracked yeah. down on a bit, Felix. Um, and so you should treat them the same way. Um, and I think it is very similar to, as you say, there being Christians these days who give Christianity a bad name, yeah. uh, who are behaving less than honorably. I had a conversation uh, a couple of months back with a guy who was doing some building work at our house. And it was just after, if you remember, there was, that, there was a couple of Hillsong expose documentary oh, yes. things that came out. And he'd just watched one the night before. And he, he he knew that I was a pastor and we got talking about it. And he said, oh, God, it's terrible, isn't it, these guys? And and the I could tell that what he was sort of fishing for as the conversation went along was like, what do I think of Brian Houston sure. and Hillsong and all, all that sort of thing? And uh, I felt the need to sort of uh, be very clear <laughs> that that's a, that's a very different expression of Christianity. And, you know, I'm not on that team in that sense and that sort of thing. And I think from time to time, it is helpful for us to distinguish ourselves from those people who are Christians, not to make any judgments about Brian Houston or about Hillsong in general, but it is helpful sometimes to distinguish ourselves from people who are uh, Christians in name only, uh, from those who are actually followers of Jesus and who are desiring to live like him. Mm. Um, trying to <laughs> That's not always easy to do because no. from the outside perspective, we're, we're all, the same, we're all yeah. wearing the name Christian. But uh, I think we do need to try and do that work to disentangle ourselves a little bit and have the right vocabulary to describe that. And I I think it does mean as well it's helpful when Christians are the ones on the forefront of calling out that hypocrisy and of people who are claiming to be Christians and yet discrediting the name of Christ. When the world does that, well, then Christians as a whole kind of get painted with a very broad brush. But when Christians are the ones on the front foot saying, hey, we've seen this going on over here. This is not honouring to Jesus. This is not the kind of life that we're called to live. That does help differentiate true from false Christianity, I think. So, you know, with grace and love and charity, I think Christians ought to be engaged in that kind of uh, process to some degree anyway. And I do think that if I was guilty of dishonouring Jesus in my behaviour, I would hope that people would call me out on that anyway. Totally, yeah. Just I mean, as a helpful rebuke to my... Yeah, yeah. And it's certainly, I would say, it's not just something um, we could do, but something we must do within our church family. Mm-hmm. We have responsibility for one another in that way. That's part of the way that we care for one another. Yeah, the question, I suppose, becomes, well, how far outside of the circle of our church family do we have responsibility to do that? And I would say that there's a, a slope, uh, yeah. that the further removed you are from this this thing, the less responsibility, less obligation sure. you have to um, uh, call it out and that yes. sort of thing. But 
close neighbours and that sort of thing. I think we, we share some more moral obligation to do that kind of work. Yeah. I notice when Paul's making his defence, he starts by defending his actions first or giving an account of his actions yeah. and then he starts to talk about what it is that he believes. Yeah. Is there a reason that he would choose this pattern? Um, I think because because the accusations are around his actions. Okay. And so that's his starting point in a sense. Um, I don't think it's anything more than that, just that he's going to use the beginning of the conversation to springboard to where he wants to go, basically. Right. So um, I think his intention is always to get to talking about his beliefs. But, mm. well, it's just, you know, in the flow of where the conversation is up to, where the trial is up to, he's got to address the thing that has been put out there to begin with and then he's going to steer it towards Jesus. Yeah, so you've said his goal is always to address his beliefs. I was wondering, is that is that his motivation here is just to proclaim Jesus or is, the, is there an element of self to, self-preservation as well? Is he trying to earn freedom? Um, it's interesting, isn't it? Like he, he denies the charges and so in a sense you could say – it looks like he's trying to clear his name. He does, and, yeah. and I think to some degree, you know, that is what Luke is trying to show us as well, is that these charges against the Christian faith more generally really don't hold much water. But Paul really doesn't seem to be struggling and fighting and kicking back to try and get himself freed from, from prison. He's just going to state the truth and, uh, you know, let, let it be where it's going to be. I suppose in the back of Paul's mind as well is that, he he knows where Jesus is taking him. Mm. He knows that this his journey here is going to end up in Rome. In Rome, got told. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, um, chapter twenty three, verse eleven. Jesus appears to Paul after his trial with the Sanhedrin. He says, "Take courage, as you've testified about me in Jerusalem. So you must also testify in Rome." So um, I th- I think Paul's got this perspective that one way or another, that's where his journey is going. And between here and there, and once he gets there, his task is, Acts chapter 20, verse 24, to continue testifying to the gospel of the Lord's grace. Uh, And so, yeah, I think he primarily it's about witnessing, not about clearing his name. That's his motivation. Yeah, it's really convicting for me because I agree that that's his motivation. But I was thinking about every time I've ever been accused or lumped in with other Christians that aren't necessarily behaving appropriately. My motivation is to clear my name, yes, to clear my reputation. Yeah, and if if I get Jesus in there, I'll celebrate that after as well because I'll realise that's probably a good thing to do. But in the moment, I just want Priority people one. to like me. Yeah, yeah I don't want to, and I don't want to be seen to be um, on the wrong team. I guess as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, that, I think that ties in with some of the stuff that I talked about um, towards the end of the the sermon, thinking about Felix and his whether he fears God or fears man, mm. you know, that, that is part of the dynamic of how as Christians we can um, put that, get the order wrong there and fear man above God and For be sure. more concerned with what a person thinks of us rather than what our Lord thinks of us. And yes. We need to watch out for that. Yeah, probably also be nice for me to hold, well, not nice, but necessary for me to hold more of an understanding of the fact that I am already righteous in God's sight. And so mm. the interaction that I'm currently having yeah. has no bearing on that because yeah, Jesus right. has already paid the price. Yeah, but I think right. I, I forget that. And I also kind of want to look good to God, which is even more ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. um, but it is it is how I often think. I, I, I just want everything to be like a real clean slate. I want to be fresh. But yeah. I already have that, thanks to Jesus. Thanks to Jesus, that's right. Yeah. The next question is a big one. There's a sure. lot in there. Um, firstly, Fe- Felix has used sin to rise to power. You know, he's obviously very corrupt and he's cruel and Mm. all the things that you talked about. Is this why he gets really kind of 
put off when Paul talks about this idea of righteousness and self-control and judgment? And then also, why does he want to bribe? What's he trying to achieve? Is he just selfish or does he, does he want a reason to free Paul? I don't know what's going on here. Um, yeah, I think the the bribe, to, to speak to that first, is that Paul has testified in the courtroom that he'd gone to Jerusalem with a large sum of money for mm. relief for the poor. So Felix has probably put two and two together and concluded that Paul is a man of means. And so he's thinking, well, you know, I could, get, yeah, yeah. I could get something out of this. Um, it is clear that at the end of the chapter that his motivation for keeping Paul locked up is to try and appease the Jews, like his mm-hmm. constituents kind of thing. So um, I, don't, I don't think that he is trying to find – um, fault in Paul and see whether Paul will take the you know fall into the trap sure. of doing something corrupt himself, bribing a, a, a judge, um, in order to then not have to submit to Paul's gospel message and, and be convicted of it. Um, I, I think that the the reason why Felix is so um, uncomfortable with the things that Paul talks about with him as he's meeting with him and Drusilla is that Paul like puts his finger right on the bruise um, and just keeps pressing mm. on it. Uh, these are aspects of the gospel, dimensions of the gospel, you could say, that reveal Felix's lack of righteousness and his, his sin and his need for a saviour. And to be confronted with that is is not pleasant for anybody. Um, so I think, I think that's why he says, well, that's enough, I'm out of here. Um, but I, I was reflecting last week that, that kind of identification of the the point of maximal pain, if you like, where the gospel is going to um, really hurt somebody in that sense. Um, be careful in the way I talk about this, but I think Jesus was quite adept at doing that yes. as well in love. I was thinking about this Samaritan woman um, that Jesus meets in John 4 at the well, and he knows to talk to her about... Uh, the water of life that will truly satisfy her. Um, he know you know he 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 knows the details of her adultery and her yes. serial marriages and um, and he goes straight for it. Like he wants to make the gospel hit the place where she is most tender, and so he does. And the difference there is that she's her heart is soft to the gospel, and uh, she she asks for this living water, and fantastically, you know, she returns to her village. And she invites everyone to come and listen to the man who told her everything she ever did. It's a good thing for her that this man, Jesus, uh, knows her deepest, darkest parts of her life and that he's going to bring something in there that's going to cleanse and, and satisfy. But Felix's heart is hard and he's he doesn't want the light of God to come into his darkness. And so... Um, yeah, I think I think that's why because the, the, that is the gospel does confront those parts mm, of our lives. It is lives. offensive. It yeah. is to every single person, um, and it's it's quite a um, profound thing that Paul does and that Jesus does in highlighting and in, in seeing and highlighting and masterfully speaking the gospel into somebody's life mm. at the point where it is it, there's going to be a response. You can't be indifferent to the gospel when it when it addresses. The, the most painful, raw parts of your heart. And so I think there is an example for us to follow there in terms of not um, shying away. You know, we all have friends, family, et cetera, that we could, we could probably quite easily name what the biggest pain in their life is or what yeah. the, 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 the biggest regret they may have in their life if we know them well enough. 
Uh, and we ought to consider actually speaking into those things rather than avoiding those things and because the gospel does speak into all the circumstances of life and all of our pain, all of our regret, all of our mistakes, all of our failures and uh, and actually meeting them in those those raw parts. We'll get a reaction one way or the yeah. other um, and Lord willing, uh, their hearts will be soft like the Samaritan woman. But it's harder. This leads me right into my next question. It's harder to do that for people that you love and know than it is for a stranger, don't you think? Uh, yes, I do. <laughs> I definitely <laughs> how, do agree. how do you get around that? How do you, yeah. I, I would much rather meet the woman at the well and <laughs> put on her bruises than you know go up to yeah. a loved one and, and, and do it to them. Yeah. How do I get past that? Yeah, well, I, I, the, the choice I suppose I offered in the sermon was a choice to either fear God or fear man. And mm. I think that is what it comes down to. Um, that we are either going to prioritize um, the approval, respect, um, uh, favor of friends, family, those who are dear to us, uh, or we're, we're going to fav- um, favor that most, or we're going to prize the, the approval of our Lord most. And there is a choice there to make. Um, I read a really helpful book on this um, a few years ago, and I, I recommend it to people all the time. It's by a guy called Ed Welch. And the book is When People Are Big and God Is Small. Mm. And um, it's it's a book on how to overcome the fear of man. It's really, really helpful. And I pulled out a couple of quotes from his books. I thought it, it might be helpful for us just to kind of reflect on it. Um, it, it he said basically the argument in his book is that uh, we fall into this fear of man and uh, shying away from honoring God when we know we ought to. Because what's going on in our hearts is that we need other people more than we love other people. That's his basic thesis. Um, And so the task for Christians is to love people more and need people less. Uh, It's just to set those priorities kind of right in our life. And loving people sometimes means offending them with the truth of the gospel for the glory of God and, and for their salvation. Um, and so that that's kind of the challenge. The task is not an easy one for sure. Like, um, I, And I think to some degree all of us um, have, uh, with different relationships and at different times in our life, we have varying degrees to which we prioritize mm. the fear of God over the fear of man. But uh, I think um, it, it is a task that we all must engage in. Ed Welch says in his book that um, one of the, the key lessons that, that I took away from it was that what we ought to consider as we're weighing up those options, will I speak, will I remain silent, will I fear God, will I fear man, is that we ought to um, compare the, if you like, the, the sight, the gaze, the, the, the vantage point that a person has on us compared to God having on us. Uh, and he, he talks about God's gaze. He says, recognize that God's holy gaze into the deepest parts of our lives is infinitely more profound than any exposure that could be inflicted by people. This is talking about, um, you know, if somebody loses respect for us, uh, God's God's gaze is has uh, infinite is infinitely more profound than the, the the gaze of another person. God's ability to punish us for sin is infinitely more frightening than any person's ability to reject us. If the gaze of man awakens fear in us, how much more so the gaze of God? If we feel exposed by people, we will feel devastated before God. Mm. And I think there's what's kind of most profound about that is the idea that if if 
you actually are crippled by the the opinions of other people that they have of you. Um, you're not going to enjoy God uh, looking into your heart and seeing everything <laughs> there is to see. Um, and so that, that, that is actually like a, a crippling thing in your Christian life. Um, and so we've got to be comfortable with being laid bare before our God and to have his approval of us remain because of the righteousness of Jesus given to us and, and to be comfortable <clears throat> being completely exposed before God. Only then can we really be comfortable to, you know, be somewhat exposed by the limited gaze of other people, and we we can live kind of comfortably with those things once we're um, sure and certain and have that fear of God uh, that His gaze sees all and still loves us. So I, anyway, I'd recommend the book. There's plenty more in there to to help us to think through these things and and make progress on it, but. Uh, I sympathise because I certainly feel the, this this burden and this struggle from time to time as well in different ways. So. You know whose bruises we're pushing on today, right? Who's that? Mine. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm going to be the most uncomfortable out of everyone. Oh, wow. um, uh, Yeah, I don't know. It is hard and I think about part of my issue also being an issue of pride and thinking that if you fracture a relationship, then... Yeah then how will they hear the gospel? Like you've got an open channel and you don't want to damage that open channel. But sure. what a terrible prideful thought to think that God couldn't work in another way yeah. and and that he hasn't got a, a better and a bigger plan. Yeah. And I, I just yeah. have been so convicted that I've got a few issues to think about. Firstly, okay. my thoughts about, like you say, how big God is, yeah. um, but also my own pride and how valuable I think the role is that I play. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I, I had a number of conversations on Sunday with people who were thinking through this very question, the fear of God, fear of man thing as well. And so I, I suspect you're not alone. Well, no. I, I know you're not alone. Uh, there are many of us who are uh, who wrestle with this stuff regularly. And so be good to support one another and, and chat these things through with brothers and sisters and pray for one another in this stuff. Definitely. You also talked about the real importance of self-control mm. um, and that's kind of the ethic that we should be governed by. And yet we do want to kind of celebrate people for their quirks and the fact they've been uniquely and wonderfully made by God. So how is there yeah. a place at all for self-expression or how do we hold those things in a, in a helpful tension? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I should nuance what I said on Sunday that uh, in saying that the Christian ethic is self-control, not self indulgence or self-expression. It's not to say that self-indulgence or self-expression are inherently uh, sinful or there's no place for any of those things to any degree in um, Christian life, um, rather that more of a controlling direction ought to be that paradigm of self-control. But equally, as I mentioned on Sunday, there are probably other little pithy summaries of Christian ethics that would equally apply that have nothing to do with self-control. <laughs> so love would be a good one in terms of a summary and that sort of thing. So um, I do think that there is a place for self-expression. The Bible does, as you've mentioned, uh, talk in, in a whole range of metaphors that imply the uniqueness of each individual and the necessity of that uniqueness. When God is not making people cookie cutter. Yes. Right? He wants us all to be different. And in our diversity, as we come together around Christ to display his glory in reconciling such diverse people together, right? So we're not trying to down not trying to downplay those people. We don't want to have a uniform as Christians that we show up to church in. Um, there are, I won't name names. There are some, you know, so-called Christians who do such things. Um, we're not looking for that. Self-expression is a good thing. Quirks, embrace them. But I would say that n neither self-indulgence nor uh, self-expression 
are unbridled things for the Christian. So yes, express yourself, but also it, it, the, the mantra that you hear so much these days of, of just be who you are mm. cannot be true for a Christian, right? The, well, in the way that the world means it, because who we are as just fallen sinners, sinners yeah. uh, is is not satisfactory, and so. Uh, be be the best version of who you are. Be who God has made you to be, that sort of thing. Express yourself, sure, but conform your expression to God's holy character and and where your self your sinful self-expression might lead you in a, a different direction. Well, then curtail that. Uh, be transformed by the renewing of your mind and express yourself in godly and holy ways and that sort of thing. So there's a balancing act there. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I hope nobody heard me sort of trying to uh, imply that uh, we all must just sit there with our hands folded in our laps uh, you know, and, and not utter any kind of joy or, you know, uniqueness in our No, I certainly didn't take like it that. that intensely, but it was more um, like I was motivated by a parent with two quirky kids wanting to know how I can... You know, I like the fact that they're quirky kids, yes. but I also want to make sure that everything that I celebrate them is a yeah. celebration of them reflecting the image of Christ, and yes. I don't want to get that balance wrong. Yeah. But yeah. your thoughts here have been really helpful to clarify. Yeah. And I'll give you one example. I've thought about this, that um, my daughter Alyssa is uh, just obsessed with art and craft and just drawing, writing, making stuff. And so trying to encourage her to use that self-expression for good godly things. Mm. How could you could, – is there a picture or a card that you could draw, a letter you could write for somebody that would encourage them, that would bless them or help them to feel included? You know, we're not asking her to change who she is no. but to use it in the service of God. So, yeah, wonderful. Mm. That's a helpful illustration, I think, mm. yeah. I'm not really sure how to use Hannah's temper yet. <laughs> Maybe that's something that needs more self-control <laughs> might be. Might as be. she gets older. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. Um, social media is something that I've also been struggling with lately. It's just rife with mm. opposition um, to Christianity generally. Yes. Um, they're kind of always insisting that we're troublemakers and all sorts of different ethical issues. How how are we supposed to engage or not engage with that? Should we should we respond, make mm. a defence, or is it best to just stay out of it and pray, knowing that often those kind of online battles yeah. are unfruitful? Um, I, I have to give a disclaimer in this um, as I answer this question, which is that my personal approach to this has been to opt out yes. of social media. I Mine think too. <laughs> <laughs> well, not of social media, but at least of reading the comments. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think it's wise. Um, there are good, godly people that I respect whose strategy is the opposite of mine and it's to wade in mm-hmm. and get their hands dirty in these kind of spaces and have those conversations and things. Uh, I think both are legitimate choices and I think that we must do one or the other. But I do think that actually... Um, there's a risk, there's a danger with uh, disengaging, which is that you seal yourself off from um, you know, a window into reality for people who are outside of Christ and the hostility they feel towards Christians. And to ignore that can be a costly thing, dangerous thing. But there's a, a, probably, I think, um, a greater danger in the other direction, which is that by actually engaging in these things, we become embittered or ungracious mm. or... Uh, angry towards others, and so uh, I'm just I'm cautious in both directions. But I think it's maybe a little bit safer just to to keep your mouth zipped. Um, but what I would say is, if you are going to have those conversations, if those conversations find you, if those conversations are face to face as opposed to online, and you have no choice but to respond, mm. I think it is worthwhile thinking about how to do that in a winsome and gracious kind of a way. 
Um, John Dixon did a book uh, a few years ago now, probably, I think it was pre-COVID. It was called Bullies and Saints, and it was about a survey of Christian history and how Christianity is both better and worse than you ever imagined. And it was like a really clever way of approaching this topic of, oh, Christians, all they do is cause issues wherever they go. On the one hand, John Dixon in his book says, well, yeah, look at the terrible things that Christians have done in the past. Isn't that awful? And he owns it and he doesn't shy away from it. He's not trying to like say that this didn't happen, which would be disingenuous. But he also shows the other side of the coin, which is all the wonderful blessings that the Christian faith and the Christian worldview has brought to the world. And I think there's something in that strategy of um, acknowledging and agreeing that those who have um, uh, caused trouble in the name of Christ, have done real harm, um, but also trying to be trying to do justice to the work that God has done through His people over two millennia, mm-hmm. and the way that the world's been transformed for the better. And I, I think, on balance, those things, uh, the, the good outweighs the bad massively. So I think you know we've got nothing to fear by entering into that conversation, but it's being perhaps ready to have some data points to point to and uh, navigating what are probably the most common examples of Christians causing trouble and that sort of stuff. So, uh, yes, as I said, disclaimer, I'm probably going to try and avoid as much of that as possible. But if you've got the energy and the temperament and the graciousness to engage in those conversations, well, then just be prepared as you get into it, I think. I hadn't thought about talking about the big perspective of what Christianity has done for the world. Mm. Um, But in our home group, um, someone reminded us of the significance of a personal testimony. Mm. And I I thought that was just so profound because she was saying, you know, if you talk to someone about what Christ has done for you, they can't tell you that's not real. She was saying that is so true. That is your experience in life. And if you're saying that, your love of Christ and his love of you has transformed you in such a great way. They can't say that that's not real. No, that's right. Even though, you know, these other things might have happened in the past yeah. or somewhere else in the world, yeah. that's true for you. Yeah. And so they might at least hear your experience. Yeah. And that was really, I hadn't thought about it like that before. I always just thought a testimony was a good story, but <laughs> that's true. Interestingly, as we come to Acts 25 and 26 this coming Sunday, Paul's going to share his testimony oh, uh, in front of King Agrippa. And it's kind of got the similar um, uh, reason for doing that. that yeah. Well, let me just tell you what God has done in my life. And yeah, you can't disagree. No, <laughs> so, you can't disagree. Uh, it's, a, it's a good strategy. Yeah. Um, I think it will help me to value my testimony because sometimes I think of mine as being a little mm. bit uh, straightforward and mm. <laughs> it's very straighty 180, but I like it. Oh, I don't, I don't think still, your testimony is still a celebration. At all, Sarah. <laughs> no, I still remember your testimony when you were being baptized <laughs> and uh, incredibly encouraging to uh, hear what God has done in your life in, in transforming you. Yeah, well, no one can disagree anyway. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> a good place to finish is remembering what God has done for us personally. Thank you so much for clarifying a chapter that was big and convicting. Um, I'm really looking forward to next week. Me too. 25 and 26. 25 and 26. I got it wrong last week, so i got to be careful to check. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We'll do it again next time. This has been a Wollongong Baptist Church podcast. You can listen to past sermons and deeper podcasts and also find information about our Sunday services at our website, wollongongbaptist.org.